This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. We are kicking off season 11 with this episode. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, I think that you are somewhere not in your normal hometown. Where are you right now? I am coming to you from Seattle, where I'm in town for a couple days this week for an NCR event that's going to be tonight at the cathedral. And while I'm here, I'm connecting with a number of friends of the house. And I just came from a lovely coffee get-together, which is such a Seattle thing to do, I think, right? (laughs) Um, With Cameron Bellum, who's a writer who's done a number of things for us at NCR And we got to see actual coffee beans being roasted, and we drank some great coffee. So I feel like that's a more touristy Seattle, touristy-appropriate thing than going to the Space Needle. So I'm so excited. So I'm coming to you from my hotel room. And Dan, you look like you are in your normal place. (laughs) (laughs) I am. I know we're going to have some time to talk in our first segment about what we've been up to this summer, but I have not spent much time in this local establishment known as my office. So I am glad to be here. I'm joining our trio via South Bend, I should say. I'm a little envious of you, Heidi. I do love Seattle, a great city. And there you are watching coffee beans in their natural habitat, which is (laughs) being roasted in Seattle. Hey, and the Space Needle isn't so bad. I think the uh, the most touristy thing is that World's Fair, like one block monorail. That thing's not worth anything, but the Space Needle's pretty cool. Well, and in, in the first floor of the Space Needle, there's a wonderful science fiction museum as well. So I would suggest that you can see a life-size statue of Gort the robot from the day that the Earth stood still. And you can see Robbie the robot from Forbidden Planet. You can see R2-D2. I just like robots. You can tell wow. this. but <laughs> <laughs> Now that's a deep dive. I I had no idea about that. Yeah. yeah, I knew you guys would know all the kitschy things to see. <laughs> oh, yeah, nerds for sure. But Father Dan, you've been making some trips out to the West Coast, and that's going to continue through the fall. Do I understand that correctly? 
Yeah, I mean, travel is more or less back to normal, which I think is why, you know, Heidi joins us from the West Coast right now as we're recording. And it's good. It's wonderful. It's great to be back with people again. It's not to undermine the seriousness of the continuing pandemic and health risks to people of various levels of exposure and risk. But I've been, yeah, I've been very grateful for that. How about you, David? What are you up to? And you're joining us from your locale. Your I basically locale. never leave my dining room these days, <laughs> but uh, I'm here in Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago. We've just started the semester at Loyola, and I have been teaching there, but also a full roster of client work for my audio production company. And so in addition to Francis Effect podcast, I'm still doing my weekly radio show, Things Not Seen. I'm producing the twice a month podcast for Commonweal Magazine and producing uh, a new twice-a-month podcast for the Paulist Fathers, who have been occasionally on Francis Effect. Some of them have come on to talk about their work in media, so I'm very excited about that. It's called The Deacon's Pod, and you can find it anywhere your podcasts are available. And it's three crotchety deacons from the Northeast who have relocated to Florida talking about life and interviewing people, and it's a wonderful show. So... (laughs) I think I'm going to be joining them in a future episode. That is wonderful, too. I think that they will be very happy, Heidi, to have you as a guest. Wonderful. And so, folks, on the show today, we've got three topics coming up. We're going to do a segment where we catch up on what we've done over the summer right after the break. Then later in the show, we're going to be talking about LGBTQ issues and the death of Queen Elizabeth and all that might entail. So please do stay with us. We'll be right back. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Summer came and went, and now fall is once again upon us. To kick things off, we wanted to take some time to look back on the last few months we were on break and catch up on all that happened while we were in between podcast seasons. In some ways, this summer felt more normal, more like pre-pandemic days, though there were stark reminders along the way that this public health crisis is not yet over. Additionally, there was no shortage of national and international headlines this summer that reflect a shared experience of highs and lows. Scorching heat waves in North America and Europe, the congressional January 6th investigations in prime time, the FBI raids on a former president's property, the elevation of a new American cardinal, and the death of Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth II, to name but a few. On an individual basis, each of us had an eventful few months, which included a wonderful in-person reunion of the Francis Effect team back in June. It was the first time we had gotten together since the start of the pandemic. So as we officially head into the fall months and kick off this new podcast season, let's hear about what each of us has been up to since we last spoke on the air. Dan, let's start with you. You had a very eventful summer. What have you been up to lately? That is an understatement. 
as you mentioned, David, it was sandwiched by by the Francis effect because in June we had an opportunity for the three of us to get together here in glorious South Bend, Indiana, uh, Heidi's old stomping grounds as a domer, a Notre Dame alum. And it was a blast. That was a lot of fun that day, too, because I know at least Heidi and I went to the Billy Joel concert that evening. And David, it was so great, as always, to see you. So I'm still uh, enjoying that, that time we had to catch up and hang out and have a good meal. The summer was busy. It was busy. I mean, that's boring on the one hand. On the other hand, it's very exciting because it signals to me, at least, that there's some quasi-normalcy returning. And we talked a bit about that at the outset of the episode, and that travel is more or less back to normal. And it really felt that way for much of the summer. It's interesting, though, that this late in the game, I actually came down with COVID-19 after being fully vaccinated and boosted, and this took place back in June. So I, I was at an academic conference, which was one of many. June is conference season for theologians, as many of our listeners know. And I was teaching an intensive graduate course in philosophy, actually, on John Dunn Scotus, out on the western coast of the U.S. And about midway through the week, I started feeling a bit out of it and tested just to double check. And sure enough, had COVID-19. I'm very grateful that it was a relatively mild case and symptoms cleared up within a couple of days. And through precautions, I stayed isolated and masked and all of that. And to my knowledge, I didn't spread it to anybody else. I continued that course, by the way. The students met in the classroom and I stayed in my room via Zoom. So that was a bit of an experience. But hey, technology helps. But I will say just a shout out to you know, to our scientist colleagues and friends who made the vaccine possible because being fully vaccinated and boosted at that time, I can't imagine what I would have gone through without that. So I'm grateful for it. In July, I spent some time visiting my family and running some road races for the first time really since the pandemic and just a few weeks after coming down with COVID-19. So that was a very humbling experience. A little plug here for NCR. I wrote about that in my column back earlier in the summer. So if folks are interested in hearing about that, they can check it out. But I think what you were referring to, David, about the very eventful summer is that I spent most of what the Northern Hemisphere was celebrating or sweltering in as summer in South Africa's winter. So I was really honored and privileged to be the winter living theology lecturer this well, South African winter, Southern Hemisphere winter, or our summer. It's a program that's existed, was founded by the Bishops' Conference of Southern Africa, and has since become a partnership between the Jesuit Institute of South Africa and the, and the Southern African Bishops' Conference, where they bring a, a theologian to the country for a number of weeks to lecture around the country and neighboring countries, part of the South African Bishops' Conference. And so this goes all the way back to the 80s. I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of some of the previous speakers like Elizabeth Johnson and Brian Massengale, among others. So they, they had to suffice for me. But it was something that was in the works for a number of years before the pandemic and then was delayed, obviously, because of it. But I just can't speak highly enough about what a warm reception I received, the great engagement from folks, all the wonderful people I met around South Africa and Eswatini, which is a country formerly known as Swaziland, as well as Botswana. And so a special shout out too to, to a number of our fans, listeners of the Francis Effect to the other side of the Atlantic. I'm thinking in particular of Terrence and Debbie, who were, who were big fans of the podcast and happened to join me for a retreat I was leading one weekend. So a shout out to them and to all who are joining us from Africa and abroad. So yeah, Heidi, how was your summer? 
Well, yeah. So as you mentioned, it started with that lovely reunion in South Bend. And then we were at the concert together on opposite sides of the stadium, but we were all singing The Piano Man together with Billy Joel. That was a great return to live music for me because it had been a long time since I'd been in that big of a crowd. My summer was kind of bookended with another concert. I was lucky enough to get as a Christmas gift tickets to see Elton John on his Yellow Brick Road goodbye tour. And that was another amazing conference, this one in Soldier Field in Chicago. I went with my husband. And the summer was a little bit different for me. There was a lot going on work-wise, and we have such a strong team at NCR, many of whom were covering for me. I was out for a number of weeks. In part, I was working on a project for NCR, but then while I was out for that, we suffered a very tragic death in our family. My 29-year-old nephew died in a car accident, and so I took some significant bereavement leave um, and tried to be support to my sister and As many of you have had your own grievings of various kinds, that it's a very uneven and long process. So it's something that I continue to be very, have very front and center in my life these days. And I would appreciate the prayers of all our listeners. I'm sure they would offer them for me and for our family. That'd be really grateful for that. So David, what about your summer? Well, first of all, I just want to express condolences again for your loss. And yes, absolutely, you have been in our prayers. And I invite, again, all listeners to join with our prayers just to wrap your family in care and love. I had a good summer. It was low-key. I've been working on recovering my physical health. Uh, Listeners will recall that through most of the spring of this year, I had about four and a half months of illness. I had the shingles. And so once again, I'm going to tell people to get their shingles shots. I now am vaccinated, thank goodness, from all that. And I am, as far as I can tell, fully recovered. But a significant portion of the summer was just spent getting over that. And even though I wasn't sick, I still had to rebuild my stamina and get some, I had to get some other things cleared in my head because I just ended the semester with what I can only describe as a brain fog. I was just exhausted on all levels. But by about midsummer, something, a switch flipped over and I began to feel much better. And I've had really just a number of months now since about midsummer of just real clarity, a lot of stability in terms of my emotions, not a lot of anxiety attacks. And those that I've had, I've been able to manage more or less. So I'm feeling like I'm in a very good place and that the summer had a lot to do with that, partly because I didn't do much. (laughs) I just allowed myself to relax and work on what I wanted to work on instead of feeling driven. That being said, with the semester beginning now, I am feeling a little bit of the pressure again, and I have had a couple of days where I've had to realign my psyche. But on the whole, I think that it was a good summer and I'm doing well. I'm just glad to be here and I'm glad to be back with you guys. I've missed you and I've missed these conversations and I've missed interacting with the listeners. And so I'm very excited. Can I can I add to well first of all to echo your condolences again and, and prayers and how do you know that you've you and your family have been in, in our prayers? But also, David, that's great to hear about your health. I know we've been, Heidi and I have been accompanying you from a distance with this, gosh, endless suffering from shingles. I actually just heard from a colleague this morning about their spouses having also come down. Actually, it was like COVID followed by shingles. And so it just sounds a real nightmare. Not to be too much of a downer. I mean, I'm inclined to talk about monkeypox and polio's resurgence, but we'll bracket that for now. 
I want to talk about the start of the semester because we've got, Heidi, your kids are off to another school year. David, you're back in the classroom, as am I. And I have to say, here we are at St. Mary's College a month into the semester, and my impression is that the students are hitting the ground with an extra pep and a little bit more normalcy than they did last year, that there's a positive, a real positive energy. And I hope that's sustained. I think part of that has to do with starting the academic year with an optional mask mandate. And so people are seeing each other's faces. They're engaging in person activities. Some of those restrictions are lifted a little bit. But I don't know. Do you have thoughts about that, David? What's your experience? Well, I want to say yes and to that. I think that those that are able to come back and are in the midst of being able to do face-to-face learning are excited by that. I know that I'm teaching for the first time in three years in a classroom this semester, still masked, still distanced, but I'm feeling the energy from that. At the same time, and this is the end part of the yes and, there's an undercurrent of trauma that wasn't there before. And I have been experiencing that both with my adult learners and also by proxy, by talking with my kids. Uh, My son is in sixth grade. My daughter's in seventh grade. They're now in different schools for the first time in their school career. And in both of their school environments, a lot of kids are coming back. In decades past, we would have called it shell-shocked, but they have unexpressed anger or unexpressed fear or unexpressed lethargy. And it's the teachers also seem to have that as well. And so even though I am glad to be back, I also want to be cautious. And I know that you weren't saying this, Dan, but I don't want to say that things are back to normal by any stretch of the imagination. We have a lot of undealt with business still to go. Yeah. Just to add to that, I totally agree. I was just going to say collectively, there's a different feeling in the air but yeah, absolutely, with respect to those who, for whom that's not the case. And to recognize that it's somewhat fleeting. If I could put a little plug for a series of events that the Center for Spirituality is putting on this fall, we have a lecture series called Developing a Spirituality of Resilience, featuring psychologist Robert Wicks, medical doctor Christina Pakowski, and theologian Julia Federer. So you can check that out at our website and sign up for the free live stream or if you're near South Bend, come and visit in person. Yeah, so I have the kids back to school. We have an eighth grader now, and my son started high school. And so far, things have been going pretty well. My husband, who's a teacher, is also back to school. I just wanted to also say, David, like I've been keeping you in my prayers with the health challenges you've had. I'm trying to figure out, is it the shingles or shingles? Do you have the shingles? (laughs) Reminds me of Chicagoans say the jewel, meaning our grocery store. But I know it reminds me of how much we take our health for granted when everything's going along swimmingly, right? And then when you're sick, you're like, oh, what I wouldn't give to not have this pain. So I just am grateful for the health that I do have. I've not had COVID yet. And now that I'm doing a lot of travel, I'm trying to be as cautious as I can. I just got the new booster shot on Sunday, which gave me a day of flu-like symptoms, but I'm hoping that it offers some protection. So we're learning how to live with this, but it is challenging, I think. And like you said, David, there's still some residual trauma for lots of folks, especially those who still are face more health challenges than healthy people. Well, let's do a quick lightning round as we're finishing out this segment. I'm curious, now that we've talked about what the summer was like, let's pivot forward. What are one or two things that each of you are looking forward to in the fall? 
Well, I'll go first just because I'm looking forward to tonight's event here in Seattle. But next week, I'm also traveling to Washington, D.C. for an event that's a number of our church leaders getting together for an event sponsored by the Leadership Roundtable. And I'm really excited to be back out among people and talking to people in person and meeting new people. So I've booked three flights this fall. I'm also going to Los Angeles. Our NCR board is meeting in L.A., and we're going to be meeting up with some folks there in L.A. as well, including. Father Greg Boyle, who I've never met in person. So lots of travel that I'm looking forward to um, this fall. What about you, Dan? Yeah, lots and lots of travel. I'm looking forward to the continued teaching here at St. Mary's, as well as the programs that we put on at the Center for Spirituality. We have a lot of exciting stuff in the works that I'm not ready yet to announce, but in future episodes, I think it'll be very timely and very important sort of work that I think a lot of our listeners will be interested in. So we'll make sure that things that are publicly available are linked to you. Yeah, lots of meetings like you, Heidi, lots of traveling. I've got lots of speaking events coming up. One exciting thing for sure is October 1st at St. Bonaventure University in Western New York. We're celebrating the inauguration of our new president. I'm on the board of trustees there. I'm an alum of that university, and I was also on the presidential search committee. So this is a, the culmination of, of a very long process, and it resulted as, as good as one can possibly imagine. Dr. Jeff Gingrich is fantastic and uh, comes to us most recently from University of Scranton, where he was provost for a number of years. So yeah, we're really delighted and excited to celebrate that, that milestone in the university's history. David, what's on your lightning round? So the middle of September to the end of October is bar none my favorite period of time any time in any year. So we're entering into what is for me the golden season. I love the spookiness of Halloween. I love the way that the sunlight stabs through the trees in mid to late fall. I love that it's crisp in the air but not yet Chicago cold. And all of these things are just perfect, perfect for me. So I'm really excited for the next six weeks. Also coming up a week from when listeners are hearing this show, a week from that Friday on the 23rd, I'm going to be playing a music concert here in Hyde Park. The Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration have a retreat house called The Fireplace, which is literally just around the block from where we live here in Hyde Park. And they have graciously invited me to come and play an acoustic concert for them and for their guests. And I'm really looking forward to that because I haven't played live music in a long time for a crowd. During the pandemic for a number of months, I played a daily concert on Facebook Live, but I haven't had a chance to really interact with people in that way in a, a number of years, so I'm very excited by that. Also coming up in October... My friends at Commonweal are having an event called Commonweal Conversations in New York, and this will be the first time that I will be traveling in three years. I'm going to go to that event they were gracious and they invited me. They comped me a ticket. But my dear friend, their publisher, Tom Baker, is retiring. And I wanted to be able to go there in person and tell him job well done and that I'm going to miss having him there at those offices. But also it'll be a chance for me to meet up with a student from my days teaching at Christian Brothers University who has become a dear friend of our family. And she lives up in New York. I haven't had a chance to see her in a number of years, and it's just a delight always to be able to catch up with a student who has become a friend and who has been so important and dear to my family. So there's a lot of things this fall that I'm looking forward to. That sounds great, David. I know I'm looking forward to the fall as well, and it sounds like we all have very busy travel schedules. 
So we'll wrap up this segment here, and we'll be right back to talk about LGBTQ issues in the church. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dolt and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. It's back to school time. But for students in some Catholic schools around the country, LGBTQ students now face the unwelcoming and often dangerous consequences of new policies addressing, quote, gender identity, and to a lesser extent, sexual orientation. According to an in-depth article this week at NCR Online from reporter Katie Collins-Scott, a growing number of dioceses, some 30 dioceses and archdioceses around the country, have instituted policies or guidelines on gender identity and sexual orientation. New policies released this summer include the dioceses of Green Bay, Wisconsin, Lafayette, Louisiana, Memphis, Tennessee, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and the Archdiocese of Omaha, Nebraska. At least four others, including the Archdiocese of Boston and Portland, Oregon, are reportedly in various stages of discussing such documents. Critics say these newest policies are among the harshest. For example, the Sioux Falls policy places limits on the sacraments, saying individuals who, quote, live a transgender lifestyle, unquote, may not receive communion or be confirmed, quote, until they fully accept the teachings of the church, unquote. Although many of the policies, which share similar language and content, take a pastoral tone that emphasizes compassion and the need to protect LGBTQ youth from, quote, unjust discrimination and bullying, all of the policies strongly critique so-called gender ideology. In the Diocese of Wichita, Kansas, schools are required to, quote, consider the gender of all students as being consistent with their biological sex for the purpose of sports, school dances, dress, use of locker rooms and bathrooms, as well as titles, names, and pronouns. In the Omaha Archdiocese, the policy includes guidelines for social media use by students, prohibiting students from promoting, advocating, or endorsing, quote, a view or conduct contrary to the Catholic Church's teaching, including on human sexuality. Violation of these standards could include dismissal. It's interesting to note that while Omaha's policy was approved in August, critical feedback from local school communities led Archbishop George Lucas to consider revising it. Reports say the wording will change, but the content, however, will not. Critics point to the problems with such policies for LGBTQ youth, saying they create a culture of fear rather than a culture of welcome and encounter. They can also be life-threatening. LGBTQ students already face higher-than-average rates of depression and suicide than their peers, and the rates are highest for transgender and non-binary youth. However, one study found that when transgender teens are called by the name they believe aligns with their gender identity, it reduces depressive symptoms and overall suicide risk by as much as 56%. Heidi, in addition to this in-depth look at these new policies, NCR recently ran an opinion piece by the writer Jessica Gerhard, who argues that trans-inclusive feminism is compatible with Catholicism. Which of these views is likely to prevail in the U.S. church? What do you think about this? Well, Dan, I'm really grateful to our reporter who did this in-depth look at all of these policies because it's definitely a trend in that a number of archdioceses and dioceses are having these policies, and I think there's going to be more to come. 
So I think that there are many in leadership who have concerns about issues related, especially to transgender students, and who believe that the way to deal with this is to clamp down with church teaching and requirements that people be referred to by their biological sex pronouns, etc. It's very concerning to a number of people, not the least of parents and students in these schools. Many parents are wondering, are these kinds of policies going to come to my diocese next? The piece by Jessica Gerhart was really encouraging because, and we'll put, put a link to it in our show notes so people could read it, she spoke from her own personal experience of a partner who had a discovery that she was he they were non-binary and how she came to terms with this and really sought it out as a moment of learning and encounter and ultimately growth. And Jessica also challenges some of these feminist organizations in the church that are promoting under the guise of feminism a more traditionalist, I guess you could say, teaching around this idea of gender ideology. So I think what's going to prevail, I can't predict, but I can say that we know that the majority of Catholics in this country, according to some studies, about three quarters support and are open to LGBTQ people, to gay marriage, and these sorts of things. But the leadership of the church seems really out of touch with these issues and instead is resorting to this sort of clamp down policies and guidelines. I don't know. So it's not encouraging to me, and I think we're going to continue to see more of that. But what are you guys thinking? Well, I think first and foremost, what we see is yet again a kind of intensification of a divide between two worlds. There's the world of a kind of neo-Thomist-rooted philosophical vision of creation and of the human person that is deeply reliant on four millennia-old Greek philosophy, this Aristotelian notion of substance and accidents and teleology and kind of act-centered thinking. And then there's reality. And I think that this first part is where a lot of these ecclesiastical leaders and diocesan officials and their advisors, they're in this echo chamber of self-righteousness and absolutism that makes no sense. It's not supported by psychology. It's not supported by medicine. It's not supported by good theology. It's not supported by the best of philosophical thinking about the human person and about experience in the world, what we might call phenomenology. And so it's deeply troubling. I mean, even as I was leading the topper as we were opening up this segment, I mean, I could feel my blood pressure rise. In fact, I co-teach an undergraduate course called Queer Theology, where we look at a lot of these topics, both from a perspective of the experience of kind of non-normative experiences in the world and what science tells us and what sociology tells us, but also how these things can help inform and shape and bolster our understandings of God and of ourselves and of our understanding of Christian doctrine and teaching, right? So there's a way in which there's opportunity for conversation. And I bring that up because young people today are, by and large, so much more knowledgeable about the diversity of experiences in the world. And so when this kind of stuff happens, I see another sort of consequence, not only the overt danger that we talked about at the outset of this segment, but I also see the, basically, I'd put it this way, rather snarkily, I don't want to hear any of these bishops complaining about why young people aren't going to church. I don't want to hear about any of these bishops complaining or the diocesan officials writing these documents talking about why Catholic school enrollment is declining. I don't want to hear about these people complaining when 
fundraising decreases because they're making statements not this is not an, a call to appease a sort of a fad or kind of a minoritized view that people need to get on with which is how it's dismissed at times but rather it's a it's an affirmation that a small number of people within our catholic community many of whom happen to be in positions of leadership are living in a world that is not tied to reality this is not the first time that the church has faced this kind of problem just ask galileo i will simply add to all of this in 2019, the Vatican released a document called Male and Female Created He Them, which is basically a doubling down on a lot of the kind of talking points that we've been mentioning here. One thing that is interesting to me about that is it engages with Catholic documents, certainly and properly, but it doesn't engage at all with anyone who is informed about the psychology or the biology or the neurobiology of gender and sexuality in the 21st century. So it is definitely looking backward and looking at its own reasoning, but it's not engaging in any kind of synodal dialogue with the world. And to me, this is frustrating because we're at a point where you mentioned Galileo, the science is changing. It is shifting. And even if you don't agree with some of the conclusions of some of the scientists, the fact that there is at least debate happening is indicative that there should be conversation and the conversation should be ongoing. Whereas documents like this, and certainly some of the encyclicals being promulgated by some of the bishops in some of the dioceses that we mentioned, they're intended to shut down conversation, not to allow it to continue. Yeah, and I would just add that when you talk about that document that came out of the Catholic Education Office at the Vatican, I think some bishops are looking for more guidance from either the USCCB or from the Bishops' Conference here in this country or from the Vatican that will help them to respond to that segment of their flock who is actually concerned about this in the sense that they want more policies that kind of clamp down on these things. So I think they're listening to that contingent who's saying, hey, I send my kid to a Catholic school so they don't have to be exposed to trans kids or something like that. And so I think in the absence of a broader document from the U.S. bishops, I think what we're seeing is these dioceses saying, we're just going to go ahead. And I think the note that many of these policies, even though they're coming from disparate places around the country, have very similar language and content is a hint that means somebody is behind them who's working together with these various bishops to have similar policies released in these various places. Well, and it's no secret, those of us who have done work in this area know who is who's creating some of these talking points, like the Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia, which is, you know, it, it portends to be a representative of Catholic bioethics. It's in their name, but it's a bit misleading. It's really a partisan think tank, and it's a place that has really promoted in ostensible academic writing, sometimes in white papers, sometimes in journal articles, including their own self-published journal, where they try to dismiss these realities, right, from a Catholic perspective. That's the angle. I will say there are some authoritative counter resources as well. And I think the Catholic Health Association is one of the best examples of this, where they've put together some resources over the years from medical professionals, from psychologists and social workers, from parents and from trans uh, people, parents of trans children, 
but trans women and men themselves who who talk about what it is we're actually talking about here. And I think that's to David's point earlier. I wrote a column a few weeks after the Free for Education put out that horrible document. And one of the things I raised is, well, what, you know, they invite dialogue. That's the premise there. But what is real dialogue about gender identity? And I think this refusal to listen is not an invitation to dialogue. It's an invitation to monologue. It's an invitation to be passive recipients of antiquated thinking. So it doesn't mean, right, for instance, that we don't take Thomistic uh, metaphysical presuppositions about the world. We don't just throw that all out. But it does mean that it has to be correlated with reality as we understand it in the subsequent 800 years. So when Pope Francis spoke to the United Nations, one of the things that rang out to me was he said that the poor and the vulnerable around the world have to be allowed to have agency in their own stories. And I'm paraphrasing there, but basically saying that we cannot narrate to those that are vulnerable what the status of their vulnerability is or how they should interpret their vulnerability, but rather we should listen to them as they speak about their experience. One of the things that really strikes me about the approach that both the Vatican and various dioceses are taking towards the question of queer people, LGBTQ people, transgender people, is that they want to narrate the stories for them and a refusal to listen, to insist that they must have some kind of mental disorder or that they are not really experiencing their own sense of themselves properly and that the church understands better how they should experience themselves, to me is abominable. It's abominable. And let me just say personally, members of my family are part of this community. Members of my church parish here in Chicago are part of this community. Adult students that I work with at the various places that I teach are part of these communities. And the students that my two youngsters interact with in their elementary and junior high schools are part of these communities. They exist, they have stories, and it is our job to walk with them, partner with them, and allow them to have the genius of their own experience to express to us that we should welcome with hospitality. Amen, David. And same here, right? So in our church communities, in our close friend groups, we have met people who are transgender, who are non-binary. My own children, it's amazing to me how much easier it is for them to use the plural pronouns for a singular person. I still stumble over that even though I'm working on it. And I think that if we can have authentic encounters where, as you said, David, listening happens, we can learn a lot and I think we'll have different perspective. Unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing. And I think it took a period of years or even decades where Catholics and everybody eventually knew somebody who was gay. It was your brother, your cousin, somebody who lived down the block from you, and then Attitudes changed. It followed that after people had authentic human experiences with people, then their views on these things changed. It's going to take longer, I'm afraid, with transgender and non-binary people because the numbers are smaller and the fear is there, I'm sure, of them being open about their experiences with people who are going to be judgmental and threaten their kids with expulsion from Catholic schools if they don't conform. So I just pray that by allowing some of these stories to be told and be there in the pages of NCR, we're able to help bring those stories to people who are open to listening to them. I think this is, amen to what you were saying, and David, what you said earlier, I completely agree. I think 
at the at kind of at the core of all this is a question about violence being done to people. This is why this is a Christian issue, a Catholic issue, a moral issue. And quite frankly, those who are the authors of these sorts of policies and documents are on the wrong side of moral justice. And so one of the things I find myself saying all the time, I'm sure I've said it on this podcast and people have heard me say it before, is that just because something is new to you doesn't make it novel or a fad. And so I think the boogeyman of, quote, gender ideology, which another plug I wrote about as well for NCR years ago, is complete nonsense. It's a term that has very little meaning. It's completely equivocal. But people throw that around whenever there is some sort of discomforting truth revealed to somebody who has a kind of antiquated sense of how the world is. And I get it. I get the response. Change is scary. Heidi, you mentioned you're a journalist. You have you live and breathe by the AP style book and they, them for a long time. Totally inappropriate for, uh, for singular pronoun usage. But even the New York Times has changed. Even the AP style guide is changing. And so, I, I, again, I don't think it's change for change's sake. I think that's the fear that triggers the fear of some of these people who are so resistant. Th- this is an ancient kind of issue too. I think of my homeboy, John Duns Scotus, who is blessed, right, on this path to canonization, a medieval Franciscan theologian and philosopher. And he talks about two kinds of knowledge, intuitive knowledge and abstractive knowledge, and that the prior, the most important, the most significant knowledge is intuitive knowledge, which from your lived experience that firsthand, abstractive knowledge is important, can be true. But in this case, to your point, David, it's telling other people based on your presumed abstractive knowledge that their intuitive knowledge is wrong. And I have to just say for the record, because I've talked about this with fellow religious and diocesan clergy, when there have been hesitancies around this or, or discomfort, like the way that Heidi, you were talking about the pronoun usage, for example. And I've said, there should be no religious woman or man or diocesan priest, bishop or deacon who should in any way, begin to question this reality of intuitive knowledge about people's gender identity and experience of themselves in the world. Why is that? Because we dare to claim that we have an intuitive sense of God's vocation, God's calling us to ministry, yet there's no external demonstrable evidence for that. So we have a tradition of believing that we know something about who we are, that we are called to ministry, that we're called to religious life, that God has a particular understanding of who we are, though we grow to understand that in time. It's an imperfect analogy, as all analogies are, but for me, I think that illustrates, you know, if you as a cisgender person, for instance, can't understand what it's like to be conflicted with or not feel comfortable with the language we use to describe gender in our society, and that, you know, you're comfortable with the gender that's assigned or correlates to the sex assigned at birth, then try to imagine from a religious perspective what it means to affirm that people have a vocation. I think there's an analogy there worth reflecting on, praying about, and considering. Well, that's something powerful for us to ponder as we move forward from this segment. And Dan and Heidi, I'm grateful for your heartfelt reflections on this. Certainly, I have strong feelings about it, too. Unfortunately, I'm sure that we're going to be coming back to this topic again and again. Listeners, thank you as well for your prayers for those who are vulnerable here in our midst. We're going to wrap up this segment, and we'll be right back with more of The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Father Dan Horan. 
Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On September 8th, an event occurred that had significance for a majority of the people living on the planet. Queen Elizabeth II, the United Kingdom's longest living monarch, passed away at the age of 96 at Balmoral Castle in Scotland. During the seven decades of her reign, many nations that had been under the control of the British Empire became independent, and the empire itself became a commonwealth of nations. Moreover, through the decades, she also oversaw changes in the role of royalty in British public life, as the term monarchy was pushed to the side in favor of a new designation of the House of Windsor as the royal family. With her passing, her son Charles ascended to the throne as the new King of England on the same day of Elizabeth's death. We are recording this segment on a day when she is lying in state. David, I know that every once in a while you get on Twitter and post a message that says you are not a big fan of monarchies in general. Do you have thoughts about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II? I have many thoughts, and what I usually tweet is a little message that says, abolish all monarchies, beloved, all of them, because I am not a fan of any kind of monarchy or royalty anywhere, anytime. So I have been engaging in the last few days since the death of the Queen by plunging back into a really amazing five-episode series from a podcast called You're Wrong About, which is hosted by Michael Hobbs and Sarah Marshall. They did a five-part series on the rise and the marriage and the divorce and the death of Princess Diana. And in that, they give us the sweep of all of the strangeness that was going on with the royal family through that time. But we just, it's a microcosm of just how messed up royal families are in general. I do not like these people. I do not like what they represent. I do not like the inequality and the the kind of siphoning of resources that supports them. I am not in favor of any of this. And so that's my position. And that's where I want to start the conversation. So that is a very strong view, and I respect that. I think I ideologically I want to align with you because there is something particularly about a um, hereditarily determined, you know, it's so arbitrary. When you look at the lines of succession, it's just so strange, particularly from, you know, I know the United States is teetering on the reality of democracy these days, but but at least the idea of democracy seems to be most fitting to me. It's interesting, as you're saying this, David, I had a, a novel experience this summer in August when I visited the country of Eswatini. It was formerly known until 2018 as Swaziland. It is the last remaining absolute monarchy in the continent of Africa. And so it's really, it was very interesting to be there. It's very interesting to learn some of the great things about the culture and the people and the history of this country, but also some of the challenges of what is the inverse of the United Kingdom, whereas in, in the UK, truly the parliament has real authority. It is the government of the people, really, and in this case of her and now his majesty, as they say. But more or less, as you've pointed out, the monarchy is for show, as it were. In, in Eswatini, it's a real monarchy with a show parliament, you know, where the king will not shake hands with his subjects, where the king has absolute rule and say over things. I mean, I wasn't individually warned, so I wasn't going to Eswatini with some sort of agenda to say anything offensive to the ruling monarch. But 
it was expressed to me as a protocol point that people ought to be careful because if you were to overstep, you know, and the king, you know, it's like Herod were to find out about it, it, it could end very, very badly. So in that regard, I was very impressed by people, some of whom were doing work from within the Catholic community in Eswatini, speaking out on behalf of social justice and concerns of inequality, concerns about safety and violence in the communities, and at times used harsh language. And, and I, and as a foreigner, but also those who were members of this community were like, wow, that's bold. It's dangerous, in fact. Whereas you can say whatever you want about the Queen of England. And well, now she's it's probably very inappropriate to do that while she's lying in state. But the King of England, let's say, will pick on Charles, and there wouldn't be that kind of dire consequence. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to confess here that I'm not a big royal watcher. So I did, as a young girl, get up in the middle of the night to watch the Princess Diana Charles wedding, and maybe that formed some of my thoughts about elaborate weddings after that. And I tend to get most of my information about the royal family from the Crown, which I watched all the seasons of that. So I don't know how accurate that fictionalized version is there, but it did give me some insights, as you mentioned, David, into the dysfunctionality of that family. And I have a lot of empathy for and understanding of people who, upon the death of Elizabeth, had difficulty because of the reminder of the violence that colonialism has been for in our world and on particular communities. On the other hand, she's a person who has died and I think may not be the most appropriate time to celebrate. I think she did offer some models of service to country. But really, to be honest, it wasn't a hugely influential thing in my life that the Queen of England has died, except anybody who reigns that long. It, it tends to be part of our own histories then. I guess the thing that I would raise that connects to the church is how some of my the concerns that you have, David, and then also that you've mentioned, Dan, about this country in Africa, about monarchies, is why monarchical, 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 what's the adjective there? Language for God has always been so difficult for me and just doesn't relate. So I don't have a king here in my secular experience and the experience that I have of Princess Diana and the very dysfunctional marriage she had is not anything that helps me to see the divine as a king. So I get people wanting to express with the language that they had at the time something about the power of God, but I find I've always found that kind of language difficult. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I certainly have as well. I think actually, though, for those of us who are in the United States, I mean, well, a couple of thoughts on that. One is because we don't have a realistic relationship with a monarchy, at least since the 18th century, I don't think that a lot of people are necessarily, I've heard this a lot, like, oh, what's the problem with Lord language, heavenly king or something like this? But I'm with you. I mean, theologically, it raises a lot of concerns for the reasons both of you have named. You mentioned the personal sort of history and connection I mean, I, I I found myself in this last week or two, every time I hear King Charles, I get shocked in the same way that I got shocked at Mass hearing Benedict XVI, our Pope, because for 26 years or so, John Paul II was the Pope. I mean, that was a long reign, as it were, and the papacy is, at least in, in the Holy See, a kind of monarchy, if not actually theologically. But to have that sort of ubiquity of John Paul II everywhere, and that was the only pope I knew for much of my life, to think about Elizabeth II reigning for 70 years is just mind-boggling. I mean, I'll be lucky if I get, if I'm alive for 70 years. So, I mean, that is impressive in its own right. 
I'll just say too that I have such mixed feelings. I love the people of the United Kingdom, which is also conflicted for my own personal reasons because I am very Irish on both sides of my family. So I'm also very attuned to the history there. So I feel like a bundle of tensions and conflicts. And I've never been really an Anglophile in the sort that is obsessed with the lineage and the royal family and all this. But I do find it fascinating, particularly when I'm in London, where I'm in, in a part of the United Kingdom where you're near one of the palaces or some historical site. There, there is something about the pageantry. There is something about a centuries-old sort of custom and tradition, which does in many ways parallel our own kind of liturgical and sacramental and ministerial tendencies. I mean, in the Anglican communion is sort of the hybrid of the two, as it were, right? This Roman Catholic religiosity plus the sort of royal tied pageantry and, and that sort of thing. So I, I don't know. I'm also thinking about people who see that as inviting and stabilizing. I think that's one of the things I've heard a lot of remembrances name is that there have been prime ministers who've come and go. There have been wars that have been fought. There are U.S. presidents who come and go and popes who've come and gone. But the monarchy is a kind of anchor of stability, which was why I understand when Princess Di did die very tragically and the queen didn't handle that well, that it was very upsetting for the people of the United Kingdom. But I, then it raises this question for me back to what you two are raising, which is like, why do we put our trust in these kind of human institutions? And so for those who find that on the flip side of the parallel in the kind of liturgical context who want these kind of, quote, traditional masses, end quote, and, and the pomp and circumstance and the pageantry, because they find that anchoring and securing, I get the instinct, but I'm also like, are we missing the point? I want to say yes and to everything that both of you are saying. So first of all, you're raising the point of the pageantry and what, let me just call it the kind of romance of royalty, that we look at this and we see the fairy tale, especially as Americans from the outside, and we can understand and we can relate to that. Well, when we were raising my daughter, she went through a very intense princess phase. And I remember she and I having a lot of conversations about this because I refused to get excited about princess with her and she would say papa why are you why are you not doing this and i would in an age appropriate way i would say because i fundamentally disagree with this as an institution and while i celebrate your enjoyment of it and i love seeing you happy i do not enjoy this with you and so you know i'm a killjoy when it comes to this partly because for white english people it is a beautiful thing for people who suffered under the Biafra rebellion, it's not a beautiful thing. And the monarchy is not a beautiful thing for those who are not light-complected people who have means. And, and so that reality needs to be constantly reintroduced into the conversation as we're talking about the romance of it and the attraction of it. But since we've also talked about the theology of it, I want to offer as well, theologically, when we look at institutions like the papacy and we think of it as a monarchical kind of institution, that also makes me very uncomfortable. I'm against a kind of empire in the Catholic Church. I'm against a kind of monarchical papacy. I'm in favor of ideas like subsidiarity, where the, if the effects of a decision are made closest to the level of those that are going to be affected by the decision, and also synodality, the notion that we are not going to just get top-down, but rather we are going to be in dialogue with those that have power in our church. Those are two ideas that are very important and central to me. 
Just to riff a little bit more theologically on that, I mean, what you're describing is in fact what the church is. It is not a monarchy and it is not a democracy. And those are the two, the most prominent ways of governance, of organizing the polis, you know, of people in a society. And so I think it's understandable that that's the way that people operate with thinking about the church. But the church is an ordered communion of communions. So the spirit of subsidiarity at the local level is in fact true, which is why diocesan bishops in their dioceses where they serve as the ordinary have a lot of power because they are the ones who they have ordinary magisterium in that local church. And that the church universal is a communion of these local churches, of these communions. And that goes all the way back to the first century with the church at Corinth and the church at Thessalonica and the church in Jerusalem and so forth. I think the other thing too, and I agree with you, is I made that remark earlier about there is a monarchical sort of sense to the papacy with regard to the Holy See as a sovereign nation, as the rest of the world sees it in terms of protocol. But theologically, the Pope is just the Bishop of Rome, and the Bishop of Rome has primacy and therefore universal pastoral and teaching authority. This is, I think, again, one generous way to look at Benedict XVI's ministry is that in his decision to retire shows that the Pope isn't conflated. The Pope is not a position that is identical with the person themselves any more than being the Archbishop of Chicago is identical with Blaise Supich or Francis George before him or, or whoever. And so I think that's important, David, that you bring up. And it's a theological lesson that that is worth remembering that this is a unique institution because among other things, the church is an institution. Yeah, I think what happens, though, is that what everything you just said, Dan, is correct, but the image or the popular image of a church leader with a cape and a crown or a headpiece, and it just gets conflated for people. And when those people have a lot of power in institutions, I think it looks like we have some sort of monarchical thing going on. I mean, I think there was something. My daughter did not go through a princess phase. We did the fairies instead. <laughs> but I, I think there is something that was powerful about seeing a woman in that position for so long and during those decades when women weren't always in positions of power. So it'll be interesting to see now that it goes back to a man. And I don't know, I'm not a huge fan of Charles, so we'll have to see how that goes. In the end, a person has died. And we even for people whose lives on earth were not perfect. All we can do is pray for their eternal souls and hope that they're being enveloped in perfect love in some sort of way after death. So that's where I'm going to leave that. <laughs> I think the outpouring of appreciation is admirable, and I don't want anybody who feels that way at all to feel dejected or dismissed because Again, this is somebody who was more than almost three times as long as, as John Paul II was Pope, was a world leader and has seen so much. I mean, I've gone down the rabbit holes of some of those photographic histories of Queen Elizabeth's reign as a young woman in her 20s ascending to the throne, as you were saying, Heidi, just not just a woman, but think about this 20-something-year-old woman. It reminds me of the Finnish prime minister and the prime minister of New Zealand. These are young women. Well, they're not young women, but they're, well, I can say not young women because I'm also in my 30s. So, but women in their 30s who, relative to other world leaders, are, quote, young. And I think that's a great model and it's a great source of inspiration. But it'll be interesting to see, yeah, I'm curious to see what Charles' public persona is, because I also think Elizabeth had a very old school understanding of what it meant to be the royal or to be the reigning monarch, as she made clear time and again in lots of big and little ways. I think Charles has been much more in the public spotlight and realizes, even in his 70s, that it's not 1950 anymore. That was one thing that came out from this five-part series from the You're Wrong About podcast. One of the things that they said is 
that the royal family is running about 20 to 25 years behind the year that we're in. So when it was the 1970s, they were still operating as if it was the 1950s. When it was the 2000s, they were operating as if it was the 1980s or even the late 1970s. They don't have a sense, and they're almost firewalled against having a sense of what the popular opinion is. And that, to me, was especially fascinating for a group of people who have so much at least spectacular power if not actual power, they are remarkably out of touch with the needs and the lives of their subjects. It makes George H.W. Bush's remarks at that supermarket about barcodes back in the late 80s seem like nothing (laughs) compared to the royal family. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Do you think, can I ask you this before we wrap up this segment, do either of you think that there will come a time in our lifetimes or beyond where the enthrallment with the British royal family dries up and the people say, we're done supporting this, and there becomes a sort of monarchy in name only like in a lot of other European nations? So I'm not going to predict what happens to the monarchy, but I can tell you that we live in a culture of celebrity. And so if we replace them with something, you know, if they disappear as somebody to follow and observe and comment on their various family foibles or what they wear and that sort of thing. It'll just be replaced with another form of celebrity that we would follow. That's I think we already do that with people in entertainment or sports stars or something like that. So I think it's the human condition, or at least the human condition right now at this time in, in our world. What do you so think, it David? Be, it would be like, uh, the king is dead, long live the Kardashians. <laughs> No. Be worse is what I'm hearing you say. (laughs) What do you think, David? Well, I will say that you summarize that much more charitably than I would have. (laughs) And so maybe we'll let you have that last word other than simply to say that if the monarchy does completely disappear, it will not be fast enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Somebody, I feel, David, you were born in the wrong century. It seems to me that the the 18th century in France might have been a better fit for your <laughs> for your agenda here. <laughs> for so many reasons. For so many reasons. Well, with that, I think that we're at the end of this first episode. I am so glad to be kicking off season 11 with you, Father Dan, and with you, Heidi. Thank you so much for being with me today, and thank you for this conversation. I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Likewise, good to be with you both. Yes, and thank you for all the listeners who came back after a summer hiatus. We look forward to a great season with y'all. We'll be back with you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have seasons worth of episodes going back into history. We hope that you listen to all of them, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening.